Let's turn to God's Word to read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, and from verse 17. Mark, chapter 10, and from verse 17. This is after Jesus has been teaching about divorce and children coming to him. And he leaves, and we read this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one has left, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or fa- mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, home, brothers, sisters, wo- mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us as we look at it. Uh, I may not be able to teach the Proverbs, the secrets from the heart, but grant that, as we've been singing, that I will speak with understanding and preach wisdom from the heart. Lord, help us to have hearts and minds that, and wills that are willing to hear and to love and to obey you. Draw near to us, whatever our circumstances, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at these verses, the three conversations that Jesus has, firstly between himself and a rich young man, secondly between himself and the disciples, and thirdly between Jesus and Peter. And I want to, I think sometimes this story is often misunderstood, and also, like the disciples, it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I think that uh, I love the reaction of the disciples because it's so realistic. Nowadays, if you get a preacher stand up and say, well, you should give up what you have and give to the poor, and people go, wow, that's great, that's really radical, and then everyone goes away and does nothing. The disciples look at this and say, that is impossible. It's not possible. So we're going to look at that, at this, and we're going to look at this where we are at. Um, I don't know your personal circumstances, most of you. I know even less your spiritual circumstances. I don't know what is happening in your life, but I know this. This is God's Word, and God knows, and God's Word is for you, and I think it is important that all of us, including myself, listen 
to what Jesus says to us through His Word, because it is really, really important. There is surely no more important question than, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So, let's look first of all at this man that Jesus loved. Look at verse 21. Begins this kind of discussion. Jesus looks at him and loves him. Why? Why did Jesus love this man? Now, if you're being a religious person, you say, well, Jesus loves everybody. That's what Jesus does. Come back to reality and the fact that Jesus had a human personality and there was just something about this man that attracted Jesus to him. In fact, it's a very, very unusual uh, a term that Mark uses here to describe how he loves him. Jesus was really drawn to him. You know, that happens to you sometimes that you meet somebody and you think, I really like that guy. And it's more than that. You just kind of really love them. I know that most of you have had that when you first met me. No, <laughs> that's really bad. Um, usually it's a kind of different reaction. But there are people whom you meet and you just go, that guy's just such a brilliant guy. I just love that guy. I wish I'd get to know him better. And that's the kind of way that it's described here. I think for various reasons, we're given hints in the text. Verse 17, it was enthusiasm. Jesus is walking on his way. The man runs up to him, falls on his knees before him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is not the Pharisee saying, I have a religious question. This is not someone trying to catch Jesus out. This is not someone saying, a very wealthy young aristocrat who runs to the penniless prophet and throws himself at the penniless prophet from Nazareth. This is the man with the gushy shoes and the, and the, the you know, really smart suit and the Rolex watch, parking his Porsche beside the road, jumping out, throwing himself at the feet of Jesus, not seeking to justify himself, but asking him, and it appears sincerely and genuinely asking him, what do I do to go to heaven? What do I do to inherit eternal life? He was concerned about spiritual things. He was on a mission. He wanted to find out more. He was the ultimate seeker. He reverenced Christ. He knelt before Christ. Now, the interesting thing there for most of us is simply this. I, I think in most churches, here probably as well, what would happen is, is your local young millionaire comes in and throws himself down, wants to worship, wants to find out more. Not only would we sign them up for Christianity Explored, but we would, we would have them saying the sinner's prayer. We would have them making a commitment to Christ. What do you have to do? Say this prayer. Say this prayer. And then they'd be in. But that's not how Jesus works. He gives an extraordinary answer. Verse 18, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. The reason that's an extraordinary answer is it's not the question, it's not the answer expected. It is, a, first of all, a question anyway, but it's also a question that's a new teaching. Neither the Jews nor the Greeks would have said that God alone is good. They would have said that there are good people. But Jesus is saying, nobody's good. No person is good except God. 
I think sometimes one of the advantages of asking questions to Jesus is that he gives us answers which we do not expect, and he gives us unexpected information about himself and God. Why, why did Jesus do this to this man? I actually think what, what he was, what's going on here is two things. First of all, he's saying to the man, calm down. The man's come with great excitement. He's really thrilled at meeting Jesus. He comes with great emotion. He's fascinated with Jesus. And Jesus says, cool it. Stop and think. Stop and count the cost that is involved in this. Our churches are so dead. Our, 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 the life in the, of the church in our country is so dead that we're not usually used to overexcitement. You know, where were you? Oh, the church was really exciting. For a lot of people, that's not the case. So sometimes we just can't identify with that. But some of you will know about this. You'll know that you've gone to churches where people are really hyped up and it's really exciting and your emotions are all over the place. And you would expect a preacher to reel them in. But not Jesus. Jesus said, calm down. Calm down. Answer this question. Stop and think. Who are you calling good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's radical teaching about who human beings are. It's radical teaching about who the man is because the man thinks that he's good. It's radical teaching about who Jesus is because Jesus doesn't deny that he is good, but he's actually pointing out that he is only good because he is God. Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. It's not a look of anger. He tells him the commandments. You don't murder, you don't commit adultery and so on. And this young man says, I've done this. I've kept all these since I was a boy. Jesus doesn't look at him and go, you self-righteous hypocrite. He loves him. He loves him because the man is being absolutely genuine. But I think the look is also one of grief. One thing you lack, he says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. I think Jesus was looking at a man who was deliberately choosing not to be what he could be. The man's face fell after Jesus told him this. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus comments to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, I believe absolutely in the sovereignty of God and in the power of God working in people's lives. And I also believe that what is taught here is true, that there are times when Christ looks at somebody and loves somebody and weeps over somebody because they are not willing. It's not even that Jesus looks at you and is angry with you for refusing to come to him. He looks at you and he weeps because he sees what you could be he sees what you will become by your rejection of him. And that's why I think that unlike so many evangelists and people who are 
say they're preaching God's word, but they're trying to get people into the kingdom, trying to get people into their kingdom, perhaps trying to get people committed, trying to you know, get people signed up, and perhaps for the best of motives. But they misunderstand again the radicalness of the gospel, which is not to put people off, but it's to ask people to go right to the very heart of things. You do not choose to follow Jesus in a superficial way. You follow him with your whole heart. Because what was this one thing lacking? Let's look at that. This man that Jesus loved and then the one thing that was lacking. He certainly had respectability. He'd kept all the commandments. He's saying, I haven't done anyone any harm. And lots and lots of people will say that. Maybe some of you will basically say that. You'll say, I've not really done that much bad. I'm not here as a murderer. I haven't gone slept around with a lot of people. Okay, maybe sometimes I've gone over the, the edge a bit with some things. But I'm, I basically kept things. Some of you will have grown up in a religious home. And you're looking at these basic commandments and you're saying, you know, I've really kept most of these most of the time. And Jesus says, but it's not enough. Because he's asking, not what harm have you done? He's asking, what good have you done? What difference has it made? This young man thought he understood the law. He thought he knew the law, as did many of the religious leaders of the time and many people today. Many people think they know morality. They think they know what is good. But he didn't understand about sin. He was to some degree self-satisfied. And it does take an extraordinary miracle to convince us that we need a savior. I think a huge number of people come into a church, and maybe again, you've come into this church, and you think, right, it's lovely, the singing's nice, and it's good to hear about a Jesus who loves you, but I don't need saved. What do I need saved from? I'm not an alcoholic, I'm not a junkie, I'm not somebody who's been in prison. Why do I need saved? because you can't keep the law, because you're guilty, because you're unrighteous, because you're going to face the judgment to come. But nothing I say will convince you of that. It is only the Holy Spirit who comes to convict of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. See, what Jesus is doing with this man is he's not adding a new commandment, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. He's not making it more difficult. He's actually going back to the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, you think you get it, don't you? You haven't got it. We are to have no other gods. We are not to make idols. So this man is told, you go sell what you have and give to the poor because his money is his idol. It was not enough that he'd got it justly. It was not enough that he had not stolen or defrauded anyone. What had he actually done with it? He's being asked, you're emotional, you're keen, you want to become a Christian. How much do you want it? Do you really want it enough to give away all your possessions to follow me? And the man says, I want it, but I don't want it that much. That's a bit fanatical. He goes away sad. We don't know what happened to him later. Maybe the words of Jesus came back to him later. But Jesus forces him to choose between the idol in his heart of his wealth 
and following Jesus Christ. Now, some of you will be feeling quite comfortable at this point because you don't have a lot of money and money is not your God. That's not really the point. This is not so much a teaching about money, it's a teaching about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And basically, the one thing that keeps you from Jesus is the one thing that Jesus says, will you give up for me? I have to have another confession to make. I'm sorry about the confession about desperate housewives this morning, and I will repent and atone for that. Um, If you weren't here this morning, you really don't want to know. Uh, Here's another one that's just as bad, Merlin. Now, we sit and watch, well, I say we, that means me and Emma Jane, uh, sit and watch Merlin on a Saturday night. And if you saw Merlin last night, um, I mean, honestly, it's teenage mush, but it's quite nice, father-daughter thing. Um, but I, quite, I actually quite like it. And uh, last night, King Arthur tells his father that he so loves Guinevere, the servant girl, that he's prepared to give up his kingdom to be with her. Um, Guinevere is about to be stoned for being a witch. I'll not spoil the whole tale for you in case you want to catch up with it on the iPlayer. But uh, uh, there's that quite moving and touching scene where he says, I renounce, I'll give up my kingdom for this servant girl. You know, and at the end, after all things kind of work out, because they do work out. Um, Sorry to spoil that, but you should have worked that one out for yourself. He, you know, this bit at the end where... um, She says, would you really have done that? And he said, yes. And you can see, oh, they're going to get married. I guarantee you, next program, they'll get married. Um, That's what I think anyway. But there's this, that you you understand, in a sense, that that level of commitment to somebody. That's what Jesus is saying to us. What is the dearest idol that you have in your heart? Would you give that up for me? I've experienced and seen people who've come and said, you know, I really, really want to follow Jesus Christ, but if I commit to Jesus Christ, my husband will leave me. Or a a Muslim friend, if I commit to Jesus Christ, my family will disown me and I will be in physical danger. If I commit to Jesus Christ, remember one man, his, his whole family tried to have him declared insane. He was a wealthy man so that uh, he, he could have his money taken from him. We, we have this notion of salvation that we live our lives and Jesus comes along and he comes to make everything a bit better. But he sees us and he knows our hearts and he, he says, as he says to this rich young ruler, one thing you lack, what will you give up to follow me? What will you do to follow me? Now, this is not teaching salvation by works. It's just asking simply, how do we, how do we get there? How do we know? How, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? It is to give him everything. And that's why the disciples, they're so realistic. Verses 23 to 27, they don't say, wow, Jesus is radical. Isn't this really cool to be following this guy? They say, they're astonished. Jesus has to repeat himself how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
And he, he, he talks about the camel going through the eye of the needle. And uh, the story is of there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. And for the camel to go through, it had to, you had to take off all the, the bags that were on the camel and so on. Um, he's really just saying this is impossible. Aristotle um, uses this word. The word that's used for riches here is a word which Aristotle says is all those things of which the value is measured by coinage. Jesus is not saying to this man, look, you sell all that you have and you give it to the poor and you've kind of bought your way into heaven. He's saying, if you love me and follow me, this is what you will do. You will sell all you have, you will give to the poor and you will follow me. Jesus is telling him to have faith. Faith not in his wealth, but faith in Christ. Such faith then gets demonstrated in outward tokens like that. This is not Jesus hating or envying the rich. This is not Jesus glorifying poverty, not insisting that every one of his disciples should be poor. This is Jesus addressing the matter of the heart. Now, as some of you know, we were, uh, myself and Annabelle, were in, in New York and as We love New York, love being there. There are two parts of New York I can't stand, though. One is Times Square, which is about as garish and and as vanity fairish as you can possibly get. And the other is Madison Avenue, which even to go into the second-hand clothes shops, which are second-hand designer shops, you need, uh, you know, a millionaire's bank balance. To walk down that street, there is almost a feeling, certainly for me and for Annabelle as well, a feeling almost of physical revulsion. And you're in the Upper East Side with it there, and you go and and you just, it's just sit and watch, and you've never been amongst so many mega wealthy people. And I said this morning that I'm just astonished to see... um, these very wealthy people either having their servants out walking their dogs or they themselves out walking their dogs. And they still drink Starbucks out of a plastic cup. But apart from that, they're, you know, the, the dogs have got perms. And as I said, one, one had this morning had a hoodie, which still amazed me. They've probably got jewelry and personal vets and probably dog psychiatrists as well. For, you know, it, it really is it's quite astonishing. And part of you, when you see that, I'll be honest, my own reaction is, it used to be one of, this is not right, kind of an anger that, that you have people homeless and begging on the streets and people starving, and you have people who've got dogs who have servants to look after them. But I'll tell you what really gets to you, actually. It's not, the, it's not anger. It, it almost becomes pity. And I think this is what Jesus is doing here. I think it's a pity that he has for the wealthy because of their handicaps and the temptations that they face. If your status is in having a pedigree dog and being able to walk around the streets and so on, it's in in having an apartment. We saw a a condo that we thought, oh, we'll just buy a wee condo in New York, you know, million dollars for a 10 foot by six foot room. That's it. That's where you live. That's your, your room and your toilet and your wee sink. And it was just unbelievable. But you think, all that wealth. And yet I wonder how many of the people who have that degree of wealth, whether there really is happiness in that. Now, we kind of expect to hear that and 
because most of us are not mega wealthy. We like to hear that. But like the disciples, we've grown up in a culture where we kind of believe that prosperity is the sign of a good person. The disciples did not see the dangers of material possessions. They didn't see that they fix our thoughts on the world. We think of everything in terms of price. We know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Wealth can make us arrogant, proud, and self-satisfied. Where for Christ, wealth brings responsibility. The Bible does not argue against wealth. It argues about how we value wealth and what we do with that wealth. In fact, I think the Bible's standard is much more radical than insisting that people be poor. I think that the Bible's standard is an impossible standard, as the disciples recognized. Who then can be saved? They're amazed. How can this be? If salvation depends on us, then we are stuck. Salvation is impossible. But if it depends on God, it is grace. We cannot buy our way into heaven. We have to trust in the saving power of God and the love of God shown in Jesus Christ. Now, I think that um, that is that's an amazing thing for us to grasp. Who then can be saved? The answer is actually anybody who's prepared to follow Jesus with all their heart and soul and mind, and nobody who's prepared to let anything get in the way. And so Peter speaks, the third conversation, the last thing. Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. Now, he's thinking out loud, and he's thinking, I've just seen a young man who's deliberately refused to follow Jesus. And I can understand why he refused. But here we are, we've given up everything to follow Jesus. And he says to him, we've given up everything to follow you. And the implication is, what do we get out of it? He's not asking, what can we give? He's saying, what's going to happen to us? And Jesus gives him four answers. I'll just mention them. Firstly, he says, you get, a, you get it back a hundred times in this life. A hundred times. Now, be careful about this because, again, if you were an unscrupulous preacher, you could say, you put a hundred pound in the collection plate, work it out a hundred times, how much money are you going to get back? Sounds good. Sounds one of the safest bets that you can possibly have. That's not what he's saying. Look at the context of what he I think he's saying in all of this, you're giving up his wealth in terms of the relationships and all the other things that we have. That hundred times Jesus says, what does he say? You've left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel. The primary focus there is relationships. In the early church, becoming a Christian could often mean losing your family, but you gained a much bigger one. Paul Romans 16, verse 13, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord and his mother, who's been a mother to me too. Philemon, verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. There are many people who come from quote-unquote broken homes, many people who come from messed up homes, who when they become Christians, it doesn't mean that their messed up homes become all sorted out and they have this nice cozy nuclear family. There are people who are single. There are people who are despised. There are people who are rejected by many. 
And when they become Christians and commit themselves solely to follow Jesus, it is not just that they get Jesus, it's that they get a whole new family. And that is just really a fantastic thing. It is wrong to speak of sacrificing for Jesus as though we were doing something. We get a hundred times back in this life. The irony is if you hold back, you don't get that. We get a hundred times in this life. Secondly, we also get persecutions. This is not a quid pro quo. This is not, as I said, someone saying, well, I'll give up this and then I'll get all this back. If you give because it pays, it won't pay. That's the irony. Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost. And I'm not even going to tell you what the cost is. Jesus never bribes people. He never says, follow me and I'll give you this. He says, follow me. He challenges people. And along with all these things, we will get persecutions. One thing that is guaranteed for a Christian is that you will receive in this life trouble. Part. If you want a trouble-free life, don't become a Christian. If you want a trouble-free eternity, do. Because you get heaven. That's the third thing. You receive heaven in the age to come eternal life. The rich young man had asked, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, follow me basically with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And in this life, you get a hundred times more, but in the life to come, you get eternal life. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And the Christian continues because of the joy that is set before us. And so we're told lastly that many who are first will be last and the last first. It's a warning to Peter, saying to Peter, look, stop comparing yourself with others. Stop comparing your own worth with others. It's easy, once you've given up all to follow Christ, to fall into the trap of pride and arrogance, because that's what I was doing, walking around New York, looking at all these wealthy people and thinking, I'm superior to you, really. Might not be. In fact, I'm probably not because I may just be jealous of them. Maybe 101 different things going on. I should not look at anybody, rich or poor, and despise people and make comparisons with other people. The final judgment is with God and with him alone. But the warning is to me, as it's the same to you, that having begun the race, we should continue. I have more respect for people who say, David, I can't become a Christian because it's going to cost me too much than for people who say, yeah, I'll I'll become a Christian. I'll try this out for a while and see how it goes. Now, once you're in, you're in. Once you commit to Jesus, you've committed to Jesus. And your faith is never really proved genuine until it's tested and tried. And it usually gets tested and tried at the points that you find the most uncomfortable. Jesus looks at us and he loves us. This is really, really serious stuff. It's not Jesus looking at us and loving us and we go, oh, that's so nice. Isn't that lovely? He looks at us and I think that, if you like, there are almost two kinds of tears if this is not being irreverent. There's the tears of grief saying, I would. I've invited you. I've called you, I've told you, I've died for you, 
But you wouldn't. You said no. You said it's not enough. You said I need something more. You said I want to hold on to this and to have you. You put something else in place of me. It means you can't have me because you don't understand who I am. Because you don't understand what I did. Because you don't understand who you are. I've done everything. You can do nothing. You can do absolutely nothing. And I think he looks at you and I think he loves you. I think I can say that in all honesty. And I think that there's a sense in which it is part of his suffering that he sees people turning their backs on him. This rich young man whom he loved going away sad. I've seen it. I've seen it not just in the Bible. I've seen it in, in the church today. That there are people, people who you like, people who, who are warm personalities, people who you, you have a real empathy with, people whom you even love. Not with the intensity and the love that Christ has, but at least a little shadow of that. And you see them saying, no, 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 it's too much. It's too much. Not for me. It's not for me. Not yet. Maybe later. Maybe another time. And they walk out the door and your heart absolutely breaks for them because they are rejecting the one person and the one thing that is necessary that would make their lives real and worthwhile. If you are that person, then what do you do? You don't walk away sad. Your face may fall, but you just say to Christ, okay, help me, Lord. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me give it all up. If it's going to cost me that relationship, fine. If it's going to cost me that job, fine. If it's going to cost me all my money, fine. If it's going to cost me my life, fine. I will follow you wherever you ask me to. And you just, you do that. You commit your life. Any one of us who's become a Christian, that's what we've done. We've given our lives wholly and wholeheartedly to follow Jesus Christ. And sometimes I think those of us who are Christians, what we need to do is remind ourselves of that. And that's what a re-commitment is. I think also that there's a way that Jesus looks at people. Again, possibly with tears. And it's with joy. At Peter, with his impetuous temperament, with all his faults, with his lack of understanding, at all of those disciples that Jesus looks and he sees, they are following me. They are following. He looks at us with joy because we've forsaken all to follow him. It is a wonderful, wonderful feeling that you have when you do something and you see the rewards of what you have done. And for Christ, that's no different. Psalm 22 talks about how he, he sees the fruit of his labors and he's deeply satisfied. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy? The joy was in seeing, this is amazing really, he's joyful in seeing us willingly come and follow him. What does it say? There is joy amongst the angels of heaven over one sinner 
who repents. And that's the tremendous privilege position we are in. Now, to me, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever for, for any of you here not to commit yourself wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ. I know that there are things that will stop you doing so, and I'm praying that God will work in your life so that you'll see that even the dearest thing in your own heart, it's not worth anything compared with Christ. And I think that as you commit yourself to Christ or as you recommit yourself to Christ, there's, there's just that joy of Christ that Christ has over you, which is then, there's kind of, it just keeps bouncing back and forward and increasing and growing, that Christ delights in you, that you delight in him. We delight in each other, and so it goes on. But it doesn't happen without commitment. And at the end of the day, that's your choice. Let's pray. Lord, you give us so much. You love us. You came for us. You teach us. You died for us. And you ask that we believe in you and that we believe in you enough so that everything else we give to you. Lord, I pray that all of us here, as we bow before you just now, would hand over everything to you. It's yours anyway. We can't keep it. We can't control it. But it's yours. And I pray that all of us, that we give our hearts, our minds, our wallets, everything that we have, it's yours. Use it for your glory. Use us for your glory. We thank you that we receive a hundred times more in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. And if any of us here have a hard heart, a deceitful heart, justifying our unbelief, justifying our lack of commitment, excusing our lukewarmness, Lord, convict us. And even as we sing our final song of praise to you, may we be moved and motivated to come to you. For we ask it in your name. Amen.